I'm Aaron Broadus, and you're listening to the Maine Fly Fishing Podcast. Join me as I talk shop with some of Maine's most influential and passionate fly fishing folks about our diverse fisheries that make Maine such a special place to cast a fly. On this episode of the Maine Fly Fishing Podcast, I'll be talking to Megan Hess about women's fly fishing in Maine, being a registered Maine guide, and her fly tying business. I also welcome back Greg Labonte of Maine Fly Guys to co-host the show and talk with Megan about something they're both passionate about, entomology in Maine. I was born in Berlin, Wisconsin um, with my mom and my dad, my older sister, um, on a ranch. We had horses, peacocks, black labs, chickens, all sorts of animals. Cool. How many black labs do you have? Uh, we usually always just had one. Uh, my dad really likes to duck hunt, and I would always go with him, so we always had a black lab for a retriever. Nice. The great, great duck dogs, too. Yeah, they're my favorite. You saw my dog, River, coming yeah. in, and I've never killed the duck, but he is the type of dog where if I throw a stick a thousand times in the water, he'll just keep going and getting it until he can't swim anymore. I mean, that's what they're like, so yeah. that's, that's pretty awesome. Um, when did you move to Maine? I moved to Maine two and a half years ago to okay. start my master's. Okay. So I got my undergrad at La Crosse, University of Wisconsin La Crosse, in aquatic biology. And then I moved here um, to get my master's at the University of Maine. Nice. Um, how'd you get into fly fishing? Um, <laughs> my earliest memory is when I was younger, um, and my grandpa was teaching me how to fly fish on my uncle's pond. And we were using like little Betts poppers for panfish and he was teaching me how to cast and he was, he was really strict, right? Like he was like, don't break your wrist and keep it really straight and, you know, too fast, too slow, that kind of thing. So I got pretty discouraged. I must've been like six or seven, like really young. And so I put it down a little bit and I think maybe in middle school or high school, I picked it back up again and I would kind of just fish here and there and didn't really know what I was doing with the leaders and that kind of that kind of thing but I always had a fly rod that my grandpa had given me and um it wasn't until undergrad at lacrosse which is in the driftless region of Wisconsin that I heard more about fly fishing right and I signed up for a woman's fly fishing clinic and it was all put on all by women um and all the participants were women, and you went through entomology, you went through casting, you went through um, tying knots, everything like that, and then the last day you got to go out on the water and actually fish with a river buddy, and so they would, you know, teach you everything, and that was, that one really sparked my passion. And How old were you? I was probably 18 or 19 at the time. Yeah, and yeah. so for people who don't know, because I've heard of the Driffles region, but it's pretty popular for, like, browns and brookies. Yeah. Rainbows too? Um, it's mostly browns. Yeah, mostly browns and brookies. But it's, yeah, it's magical. Is that like... Um, In the su- southwestern part of Wisconsin anyway, which is where I pretty much contained myself. And does that border with Michigan? That borders with Minnesota. Minnesota, okay. Yeah. Interesting. And Iowa. Very cool. Yeah. I've yeah I've heard of Driftless Region. I've just never been, I've never been in that part yeah. of the country, so... It's, it's really small. It's like anywhere from sidewalk size streams to like road you know size sure. they're they're small yeah but they're just chock full of brown trout wow. what so how do like how do the brown trout do so well in that i guess i mean 
we have that here too, but they don't thrive like that. So. Yeah. Um, I think just their agricultural practices were really good starting out and just, they, they just, they have it on point, I guess, just yeah. with their management. Does this say colder there longer? Like where they are? Like is the streams colder longer? Cause here in Maine, a lot of our streams are, they get to like really hot temperatures, especially if they're not heavily covered by trees or whatever. So they get really, really cold. Do they stay colder there? Like are there not mount I guess are there mountains around like I I know nothing about that area I've never been out there so like what what about uh, how are they different from mainstreams I guess yeah here? I don't know I just honestly they're crystal clear um spring fed small little tributary streams that really it's like you're fishing more in like kind of prairie stream area as well so it can be difficult with the full sun and that's just that's what I remember of the Driftless for the most part. Yeah. Do people live in the Driftless area? Yeah. Because I've always pictured it as this like remote like area where a lot of people don't live. But... No, it's there's a lot of farming there. Um, it's a region of Wisconsin where the glaciers didn't hit. So it's just oh. these rolling hills that are, you know, all coming in and bluffs. And, nice. I wish yeah. we had more of that. I wish <laughs> we had more of that. It's so cool. Yeah, that's not, not big here in Maine. And no. obviously, and the, you guys also have a... You have pretty good musky fishing out there, don't you? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so that was another thing that was different when coming to Maine is that it's such a warm water fishery um, in Wisconsin. So the the pike, the musky, the bass on the fly is like what you, you usually go to Wisconsin to do. Yeah. And so, you know, when I came here and it's all about trout and salmon and that kind of stuff, I kind of took a step back and I was like, well, where's the musky? Where's the pike? Where's the, you know. Right. So we have them here. Yeah. Oh, I know. <laughs> oh, I found. Yeah. 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 No, I know. Greg's all excited right now. I thinking about musky. <laughs> yeah. So. yeah, me too. Musky on the fly. Yeah. There's nothing better. Yeah. Are there like a lot of guides out there in Wisconsin who guide for musky and smallmouth? Yeah. Is it pretty popular? Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. Man. We just don't have that here. We should because we do have awesome. I mean, you're right up in Old Town. You're near the Penobscot. I mean, that's amazing smallmouth fishing there. So yeah. that's pretty cool. Um, to go back to that clinic. Who were, uh, was there any like famous people that ran the clinic? Yeah. So when I was just kind of starting out, I didn't realize who was all there, right? And yeah. now kind of looking back, um, Gnome Buckman Stark, who is here um, in Portland, she ties uh, for Predators on the Fly, her company is, Big Musky Flies. She was there, um, and Jen Ripple from Dunn Magazine was there. Yeah. Um, talking about um, tying and knots, and Jerry Meyer, um, who owns a brick-and-mortar shop actually in the Driftless in Viroqua, um, but she also is an owner of Athena and Artemis Women's Fly Fishing, um, a Women's Fly Shop, and so that's all brand-name women's clothing that's all online. You can find it all on So that's Fly. national? Yeah. Cool. So you just Google that fly shop and look it up, and she's got all the women's clothing and women's waders and boots and resources all in one spot yep. so it's a really really neat website that's awesome fly that's shop cool. online yeah. i i listened to uh we were just talking about this before the interview but i was listening to a anchored podcast and i listened to the one with jen from dunn magazine on there and that was that was really cool that was, yeah. a, that was a great episode and so I love when she talks about the the history of women in fly fishing. She knows so much about all of that stuff. It's so fun to listen to her talk about That's it. It's great. And we have, I mean, I think a lot of our listeners know this, but we have some pretty great, like, women's fly fishing stuff here in Maine. And the first main guide was a woman. And yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Then you got Kerry Stevens who tied yeah. a ton of popular flies that people still like pay a lot of money for today and use them pretty regularly. So yeah. I use some of those same streamers actually. It's, they still work. I mean, they've always kind of worked. So um, that's great. So you went to this, and then what happened after that? Did you keep fly fishing kind of on your oh, own? Oh, yeah. Or? Like right after that, I was looking to upgrade my rod because it was still the rod that I had from my grandpa that I took to that. And <clears throat> went out all the time, finishing when I was finishing my undergrad degree and was completely hooked from it. Yeah. Did and you I, feel really confident after leaving there? Yeah. So with going into like women's clinics like that, it's so, it's super encouraging. So like you go in, you're maybe a little intimidated at first because you're learning something new, like anything else, you know, any other sport that you're doing, but you're automatically like encouraged to, oh, come out here and cast. Oh, wait, like now tonight we're all going to like three of us are going to go mousing. Do you want to go? You know what I mean? And that kind of stuff. And I'm like, well, me, I'm just kind of starting, you know what I mean? And they're like, no, no, let's go, let's go. And so you're encouraged and you're learning all of the basics, like different flies, different knots, different everything. And so when you're done, you can really just get up and go and you have a confidence level that's much greater than when you started. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a great like starting support system where you're not having to I mean, you could, like, keep paying for guides, but, no, you know, you're a teenager. You don't have money for that, right? And right. it's, like, to just have this group of people or whoever just doing that to go out with it's pretty cool. Yeah. You know, just to teach you stuff. Did you I have any have... friends? Did you have any friends that were, like, around your age, like your buddies outside of the fly fishing group there? Did you have any friends that partook in fly fishing, or were you kind of on your own? No, I was kind of on my own. That's unique for, you know, it's yeah. a unique situation. So, yeah, I wondered how that would play a part in it because i know fishing alone is you know it's a whole different world than fishing with someone else it really is so when you're fishing alone it's a lot your you know mental fortitude has to be so geared towards fly fishing like it's i think it's a testament to how much you love fly fishing the fact that you stuck with it basically by yourself if you you know yeah that's that's incredible yeah it really is i remember a lot of those early days on my own and just you were just talking about leaders and stuff. I mean, I didn't even, I, did, I just bought leaders for the first like year and a half. I didn't even understand what tip it was <laughs> and how to tie a knot. <laughs> I'd be like, why is this, why isn't this fly fitting on here anymore after cutting it back 10 times? And <laughs> and then I just discovered tip it, which obviously is a game changer. Yeah. But, <laughs> yeah. And a necessity. But yeah, I just probably spent $200 on leaders in the first <laughs> year and a half. So that's how that, that's how that goes. So, all right. So, so this was like high school for you? This was my undergrad in college. Oh, so you were, okay, I got you. Yep. So you were doing that undergrad stuff, and I mean, you're, so now what are you doing? Or what's your current, like, how'd you get to Maine? Yeah. What's your current situation? Yeah, so I, my first degree um, in undergrad was aquatic biology, mm-hmm. um, and my job was to identify aquatic insects for mercury contamination or mercury. So identify them to species and then we would combust them and see how much mercury was in them. So my job was to identify them to species. And so when I was looking for graduate positions, I was looking more to research mercury again and look for different programs. And at the University of Maine, my advisor started the Dragonfly Mercury Project, which is um, you monitor larval dragonflies so nymphs in the water Mm -hmm. in over 100 national parks and then you get baseline mercury concentrations 
Wow. So, and I, I had known of this project in undergrad, and so I reached out to my advisor, Sarah Nelson, and I was looking and I was saying, okay, can I, can I please come here and can I do this and can I continue on with this kind of research? And so that's what brought me to Maine. Gotcha. It was that program. How, so just to backtrack a little bit, you're in high school. Like, how did you get into, why did you want to go into aquatic biology? I mean, that's kind of a specialized first, field, right? Yeah. At first I wanted to be, I thought I wanted to be a marine biologist. And so you can't really do that in Wisconsin. So, no. I, no. you know, you go, you go to the Driftless region or, you know, the western part of the state and you're right on the Mississippi River and it's, there's fresh water all around you. And so I just kind of went into that kind of stream ecology and aquatic biology, entomology route instead. Cool. And loved it. So, But it, for you, it had nothing really to do with fishing at that point? No, not really. I mean, oh. I grew up like always, you know, fishing conventional fishing and all that like my mom was huge into musky fishing my dad was always bass fishing you know like just all sorts of all sorts of kind of fishing so it wasn't I didn't really link the two until after I learned more about insects and I'm like okay yeah that's a pretty sweet little connection to put together there (laughs) obviously so that's that's really cool so did you have you finished your grad work are you just finishing it yeah so I just graduated um um, one month ago, exactly. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Congratulations. Thanks. Yeah, congrats. yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, it's a big step. And you're living, you live in like the old town area? Yeah. So I actually live in Hudson, Maine. I just moved out to the country. So cool. Nice. Now I'm just taking some time off and hanging out with friends. And That's awesome. Yeah. Taking um, a breather after my degree. And you know what I got to ask because I was just telling you, I was just kind of scrolling your Instagram page and. Are you living in a treehouse? Did you build the treehouse? Did you? Are you renting it? Yeah. So this house that I just bought has a two-story treehouse. Okay. And it has electricity and heat, and so it's absurd. Wow. Yeah. That's. Yeah, that's very cool. That's yeah. very cool. The original yeah. owner was a carpenter, and yep. so you can tell that the old pieces that he finished, like from that he didn't use from the house, he used in the treehouse. Mm. So you must have just had some extra, like I don't know. It's it's really neat. <laughs> that's a main that's a main move right there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's a mainer move. That's yeah. something just some. Oh, I'm gonna build this trio so back and yeah. rent it or right. something. And then, Do you have anything set up in there? No, not yet, because I just moved in, so I'm still kind of. It's set up for. It looks like either like grandchildren or children right now. Mm-hmm. So yep. There'll be some hammocks and some. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. How yeah. high off the ground is it? <sighs> Is it like really high or just like 10 feet or something? Yeah, maybe like 10 feet. Like 10 feet. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. Does it have a deck on it? Yeah. Oh, okay. Man. So cool. I know. I'm just so looking at cool. the picture here. I can't see that. But so cool. That is awesome. You have a lot of uh, comments on it too. People are, people are digging the treehouse. Yeah, it's it's pretty absurd. That's awesome. Is it just you, just you living there? Are you going to have like a roommate or? Yeah. Yeah. Yes to the roommate or yes to? Yeah, I'm just living roommate. there. Oh, that's yeah. cool. Okay. Nice. Awesome. That's great. Um. So, all right, so you just uh, just finished grad school. What are your p- short-term plans? Right now, um, so I just started my LLC um, for tying and for guiding. And so right now what I'm doing is kind of just, I was going to tie in the winter, take a break, and just see, you know, tie for a few fly shops and just kind of be a bum for a little bit and sure. just let my brain relax and um, catch up on some flies that I want done for guiding and that kind of stuff, but... Um, I'm also helping my friend in the field, um, as a, as a field tech just for the winter. So yeah, yes, just kind of hanging out. So, uh, are you tying for shops in Maine or shops outside of Maine? Yeah. Right now I'm tying for Eldridge Brothers. 
Oh, great. That's awesome. Yeah. Nice. I'm doing the beginner's class on Sunday down there. That's so. awesome. That's great. Um, and how, so how did you get in the fly tying? I mean, that I don't, you probably didn't learn that at the women's clinic. And no. Driftless is probably something you picked up afterward. Usually most people do. Yeah. So. I remember actually sitting at my cabin when I was younger and my dad's vice was on the table. That's cool. And so, yeah, my, my dad and I now try to go fly fishing at least once a year because he's back in Wisconsin still, but... Um, he used to tie flies and so he first gave me all his stuff because I remember when I was younger, you know, tying just like red, white, and blue flies or like something that was pretty or, you know, just whatever. Yeah. 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 And so now it's like, um, so I had all of his stuff and then when I started learning more about the material and the vices and that, you know, that kind of stuff, I upgraded. So you must be getting pretty good at it if you're doing some mass production. So Yeah. yeah, yeah, I've been, I've been tying for just about when I got obsessed with fly fishing that's awesome nice i i tie just to refill my guiding box and for my personal self but my hat's off to you and you also greg who tie a lot of flies like you guys sell them i would never sell the flies that i tie because they don't look exactly like you know like a perfect woolly bugger a perfect something and i know they catch fish and i'll just put it on the end of someone's line and know they catch fish but it may not look Super perfect. I'm not very artistic, so uh, it's the too, most artistic thing I say. Too modest. <laughs> too modest. Too modest. Well, you're, you're, they're not perfect. Look good. I watch like Nate tie, and I see his stuff, and I've seen your stuff, and I see some of your stuff, and it just looks like everyone's perfect. And uh, when well, you don't have to sell the flies, you don't need to really worry about that as much. That's the thing. I will I tell you a secret: not every fly that we tie is perfect. Not everyone comes <laughs> so out you, perfect. That is true. So, <laughs> so do you those like? Those ones go in my fly box. Yes. <laughs> so okay, so you don't just scrap them, right? You just no, no, like, no. Eh, put them somewhere else. Like I have a little, I have a container with I don't know, like five hundred flies that are just like ones that I have either messed up or don't meet my standards. So yeah. and I don't need them, so I just like. Put them in a box. Okay, so you you won't fish those flies that you didn't tie. Well, I already have like thousands so many. of flies in yeah. my boxes, so it's like I don't need I don't need another size eighteen tan caddis. So that was my that was my issue. <laughs> I don't need another one. That was. I mean, I'll take them. I guess you I'll know. fish anything. But I that's my thing is like if I tied something I didn't like how it looked, I'm like I want I don't want to fish this. I'm going to put this aside. But at the end of the day, it's like you just get this huge pile of them, and I don't know. It's, I got, it's hard. I got the yeah. best advice from Gnome, actually. She was talking about, she's like, not everything is the same in biology. She's like, so maybe if you're tying a woolly bugger and your rubber leg comes off, she's like, eh, that happens in the wild, too. Right. Like, just fish it. And I was like, that's pretty good. Yes. And, like, some of my biggest fish have come on some of my worst-looking flies, you know? like it, right. so. I, it's just your own personal aesthetic that you're going for with the perfect fly look, you know. It's, right. it has the fish don't really care. But but I think as tires, much, you know? <laughs> they don't. They don't care. No, you're right. But as tires, we all have like this OCD where we yes. won't like. I'm not putting that in my box because it course, doesn't. Look, of course, doesn't look perfect. <laughs> but like an injured, great. an injured insect on top of the water does not look pristine. It's very it's disheveled true. and mangled, and so fish aren't looking for that perfect silhouette all the time that's a good point you know? so it's like yeah and sometimes we fish that fly that was perfect and then it gets ripped apart and you still keep fishing it because you're like oh, it's yeah, working right, right and you know, yeah it doesn't really matter so yeah. i don't know maybe, maybe i'll change my ways a little bit yes. then yeah, i think you should not, not a bad idea <laughs> give yourself more credit than what, right. you're, what you're giving all right yeah. um before we go a little bit more into your your uh, llc that you started 
Um, what are some things you like to do outside of fly fishing? Um, <laughs> some call me a tinkerer, and so I like mm-hmm. to try different stuff. Um, I'll just pick up a hobby and see if I can do it and then kind of be done with it. I, I want to start wood burning. Like, yep. I really like arts and crafts. Um, my whole family growing up was all artsy. My mom paints. My sister does ceramics. My grandpa was a painter. It's just mm-hmm. kind of, I really like to draw, so... Awesome. Anything that I can, you know, build or kind of try to draw or anything like that, I really enjoy. Yeah. And, I mean, wood burning is great. Woodworking is great. It's tough to pass the time in the winter because, like, are your winters as long in Wisconsin as they are here? Yeah. They're still just as long. Okay. Yeah. So you know you got to fill your time because you just can't be on the water as much as you want to be. you got to find other things to do. So. Exactly. Yeah, cross-country that's cool. skiing, that's, that's helping a lot. That's cool. I'm really starting to enjoy that in the winter, so. Yeah. I mean, you got to get outside. Greg, Greg, you've been ice fishes, which is against the rules for fly fishermen. <laughs> a little bit. I like but, that. Oh, a, lot, a little bit. A little bit. you got to get outside. Yeah. So, well, that's awesome. That's great. Um, all right. So, let's go back then. Let's talk about, let's, uh, let's talk about, let's talk about guiding first before we talk about your fly time. So, what made you want to become a, a main guide? Be, especially being from Wisconsin. I mean. Yeah. Um, that's actually kind of a crazy story. I was at, um, the Edison fly fishing show two years ago and I was helping Jerry Meyer with the Athena and Artemis, uh, woman's fly shop booth. And so a, a lady had come in and I was helping her try to find a fly fishing casting shirt. And she had told me her name was Sherry. Um, she is one of the owners. She works up at Chandler Lake camps and, Asking me, you know, do I ever come up to Maine? And at that point, I had just moved to Maine, like, two weeks before that. Or no, yeah, like, maybe two months before that or something like that. I was fairly new to Maine, didn't know much about it. And she goes, oh, well, you got to come over to our booth, and you got to meet Jason, and you got to, you know, learn about Chandler Lake Camps. And so I went over there, and, you know, sure enough, he's, you know, he's telling me, well, you got to come up and fish. And I'm like, okay, yeah, we'll see. And this was still winter. This was about this time two years ago. And... I went up there in the spring and had the best day of fishing of my life. That's awesome. Brook trout, like brook trout, brook salmon. Trout. Mm-hmm. Brook trout, trout and like coming from the Midwest, like brook trout, like a big brook trout there is like 12 inches. That's yeah. like mm-hmm. a trophy brook trout. And so I'm catching like over 50, 16 inch brook trout mm-hmm. in a few hours. Yeah. Like pond, on, pond, pond fishing. On a pond, sure. dry flies. My jaws to the ground, you know, right. cannot believe it. And so, you know, and, and Jason's just laughing at me because he's like, yeah, you know, Maine, yeah, yeah. right? Like, he gets it. Yeah. yeah, so I would just fell in love with, the, like, the Maine Woods and yeah. the North Maine Woods. And so I had gone back, you know, here and there, and they were learning a little bit about me. I was learning more about them. Um, they started asking me some entomology questions, some tying questions, that kind of stuff. And very quickly they were encouraging me to get my guide's license and, um, kind of look at other avenues to, to progress my, myself. Really. Sure. Yeah. yeah. So when did you take the guide test? Uh, June 3rd of last year. Okay. So yeah. you had it for a year. Yeah. Nice. Nice. So. How did you prep for it? I always love to ask people that. Yeah. I think being in school kind of helped me because I really, like, disciplined myself and, like, learned how to study for it, right? Yeah. And um, I also went to the the guide school, the Fins and Furs Adventure by Car- um, Carol and Lila yeah. Ware, yeah. which I highly recommend. I learned so much in that. I've, just, I've heard that from most people who go yeah, there. Yeah, and I just felt way more competent, you know, 
when I was done. And yep. so that was great. I, that, yeah, I would highly recommend that, yep. especially if you're going to go take your exam. Now I, so I took it like five years ago, but if you took it last year, um, just because people may not know, like getting your guide license in Maine is one, it's one of the hardest places to get a license in the country. I mean, I've heard other, I've heard this come up on numerous podcasts and seen it in forums and stuff. And there are other States where you don't even have to have a license. You right. can just, Hey, I'm starting a little business. Yeah. There's other States where, you know, you have to work for an outfitter. They just kind of have to vouch for you. Right. But then in turn, you don't really have your own business. You have to pay them back a cut. And they do that like in Montana, right? So, yeah. Um, so the guide test, you want to talk a little bit about how, like, what's the first thing you did when you went, when you went there? Oh, I got there early because I was nervous. And so I started. <laughs> As we all were. <laughs> so I started my uh, written exam. Yeah. And then, uh, actually, I was so early I could actually leave to go have lunch. Oh, wow. And then okay. come back and do my orals. Um, so then so, I walked so in. Just for people to know, what's the, so what is the written, written exam about? You went for your fishing license, right? Yeah. Because there's fishing. fishing, there's recreation, and there's hunting, right? Right. So how many questions are on the, the written? There's 100. 100, right? Yeah, multiple choice. Um, and I think you get like 45 minutes to do it or something like that. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah. Um, so you can go in and then you do that. And then right after that, if you pass that, you can go to map and compass. Mm -hmm. So that's like a 15 minute limit exercise. Yeah, it's tight. It's, it's not a long window. Yes. Yeah. That's the most stressful part for most I think people. So. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. yeah. And I'll, I'll, th I'll throw out here to the whole world. I actually failed the map and compass the first time around. So I passed the, um, I passed the written part. I passed the, they still gave me the rest of the oral part. They didn't just say, go home. Yeah, yeah. So they gave me the oral. So then when I had to go back, I just had to take the map and compass again. And what, what made me fail was they ask you to go from, you know, the inlet of this pond to the outlet of this lake or whatever. And then they ask you to do it again. And they ask you for like, what, a back azimuth, right? Um, they ask you for true north and magnetic north, yep. right? So I messed up because the, well, one, the time limit, but two, in my studying, I did not think to think about, because I'm looking at these ponds, right? And you have a stream coming in, you have a stream going out, but I wasn't thinking in my head, which one is the inlet, which one's the outlet. Yep. I wasn't thinking about the contour lines, right? Mm -hmm. So I guessed, I guessed at it basically, and I guessed wrong. So, you know, looking back on it, you, you have a, it's, it's usually like what, it's like a game warden and like some retired main guides or some retired yeah. wards or something like that, right? Yep. That test you and. Oh, I felt so like embarrassed after because I like, <laughs> I mean, it yeah. seems so simple, but you well, just, and you're under and pressure. You're under as pressure, well, so you're you know, yeah. It's it's 15 minutes. You have Most to find likely. two of them. You're working on a wood table that they say has no magnetic effect, and you're like, they only give you like a three degree variance or something like mm -hmm. that, right? So you can't be off by a lot. And I just remember being really stressed out about that part of it. And, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. How did you do on your map and compass? I did well. You killed it. I did well. Oh, good for yeah. you. Good. <laughs> that makes one of us. Then, so. Are you sweating right now? Oh, I am. I hate thinking right about it. Yeah, I don't like thinking about it. Uh, I'm just glad I never have to do it again. But, um, And then talk about the oral. So there's the oral part. It's kind of yeah. a panel. You're sitting from a panel, right? Right. So I had I had two gentlemen that I was talking to, and they were talking about... At first, they had asked me questions, just general stuff, like, what do you pack on a three-day canoe trip? You know, and like things like that. And then... Got a little more serious questions, and then all of a sudden, they actually told me, they're like, okay, now we're going to do your catastrophic event. And so that, you know, they just 
dig you into a hole asking you questions about, you know, you have two clients and one wants to fish over here and one wants to fish over there. And I was like, absolutely not. Everyone's got to stay together. And he's like, well, no, for the sake of the thing, you got to let them go. And I'm like, no, you know? And so it's just, you really got to, they really try to, they try to steer you off course. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, and then that, whatever you say from that, they just keep kind of spiraling you down and you have to just dig your way out. So it's true. I mean, as, as main guides, we are put in the situations where we're in places where there's no cell phone reception. So what are you going to do if there's an injury? Right. You know, they do. So I think for most people, they either choose to do a lost person scenario or they do a catastrophic event. Yeah. I've heard of some people getting both questions, which kind of sucks, but (laughs) is what it is. Um, I had a catastrophic event too. I remember. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you're right. They just keep kind of digging a hole and like, okay, well now this happens and okay, now this happens. What do you do now? What do you do now? So, but I I can tell you personally, like being a guide on the river, I've had situations where, you know, I've had clients who they don't really listen very well and like, Oh, I'm going to go over here and fish. And then I'm like, all right, well don't go too far. Like I want to be able to see you and so make sure you're doing all right and come check in with you. And then like, I look and then they're just like gone. Right. And I find them like quarter mile away this guy's hand was bleeding. He like poked it on a tree or something. And he's like, geez, it's really rough hiking over. I'm like, yeah, that's why you just stay with me. <laughs> right. You know, it's like, you know, you paid me to take you out of here for a day. And it's yeah. like, you know, just listen, please. <laughs> I think that's why the license is so hard to get too. Cause it is rugged country, especially if you go, you know what I mean? And you're going out and you're going to these remote places. Like an accident could be really bad. Yeah. For sure. Far away, so. Yeah. You got to have a game plan, you know? And, and, um, they they want to just make sure in that test that you're not just like, well, I'm going to hike out and call the game wardens. You know, like they want to make sure that you're going to make a concerted effort to do as much as you can to, you know, help the situation. And um, but I mean, I'll tell you, even as a guy, like that's stuff crossing my mind all the time when I'm in a place if some, you know, if somebody breaks their leg or somebody rolls their ankle. Like, what am I going to do in that situation? Right. So they uh, they you know, they get you they get you thinking about it, get you prepared for it and stuff. And um it's not an easy test to pass at all. So, and it's, it's great that they do that. Um, and congratulations to you because not a lot of people, some people don't go back. Like they don't pass it and there's like, uh, I don't think it's for me or Thank whatever. Yeah. So that's cool. That's yeah. awesome. Um, okay. So you've, did you do some guiding last year? Yeah, I just did a little bit. Um, I did about 15 days or so. That's great for your first year. That's really, that's, yeah. that's awesome. Yeah. And you did all at Channel Lake. I did some at Chandler Lake, and then I did some at Matagammon Wilderness. Oh, cool. Yeah. That was a kids' camp. Nice. There was um, a few different groups of kids that were coming in and staying at the camps on their canoe trips. And so they were canoeing, like, this crazy long... Yeah, well, that's what a lot of people days. do. They, yeah. they do the East Branch of the Penobscot or wherever they start yeah. in Matagammon. Yeah, and so they, and then they had one day there, and that was their day to learn fly fishing. And so they were... Um, I think middle school or maybe early high school, and it was a blast. That's awesome. It was really fun. Was it just you as a guide, or was there other guides there? No, there was other guides, them? yeah. Awesome. Yep. That's great. Were you fishing for smallmouth? Yeah, that yeah, time. Yeah, that's a big, yeah. I mean, it's a big smallmouth stretch. So. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Good for you. And so, um, I, I it's funny, someone was asking me earlier, like, if you talk with people who are guides, they should tell you some stories, and I know you've only been doing it for a year, but do you have a, do you have like a funny story from guiding? Anything from last year like sticks out to you? Like it was just kind of a funny moment for you. Um, I know I'm putting you on the spot here. <laughs> it's hard to think about. It is. So. It is hard. Yeah. If I th- if I think of something, I'll, right, I'll we'll, jump right, back in. We'll come back to it. So, um, 
Now, we talked kind of before the show here because this question I have next for you is it's kind of like, you know, it's a, it's a tough topic across the country. And um, you know, the question I'm going to ask is, you know, what are some pros or some challenges to being a, a female guide? And um, I, uh, I got to be honest with you before this year, I didn't, I don't even know any female guides in Maine. I know some people that are some women that are doing some things with fly fishing, like Evelyn King um, does like the main, was it Maine women fly fishers group? Yeah. And I know Greg, that you spoke at one of their events not that long ago. Yep. Fantastic Uh, group. Yeah. Really, really good group. Yeah. So I, I don't know, like I don't really know many female main guides. Um, and it's mostly just a lot of guys, but then with the introduction of social media, I've started to see people like April Vokey out there and like Abby Schuster and Martha's Vineyard. Like she's super successful with it. Right. And she just looks like she's just having a great time. And, and, uh, you know, she knows her fishery well, and she's a really great guide. So are those people you look up to? Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, I mean, all of those ladies, there's there there's tons of them. I mean, yeah. Heather Hudson with United Women on the Fly. It's like there's they're all over the place, and I think it, it's just starting to be kind of a focal point where they're, you know, starting. I feel like all over they're just kind of starting to emerge, yeah. right? So, yeah. It's exciting. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely there's definitely a demand for it because, I mean, being being a guy, I think sometimes like when I've taken out, you know, just women or I've taken out women with their boyfriend or their husband or their dad or whatever, they always kind of seem a little intimidated compared to the the male, and they're they're just kind of like, oh well, like a lot of times they uh, like couples are like like, oh hey, can you teach my girlfriend how to fly fish? And I'm just gonna go up here and fish. It's almost like. It's almost like they don't even view it as equal in a way, but maybe it's just because he's been doing it for a while or whatever. Um, but it's funny because I'll tell you from my experience and I've, I've had females go out and they have a way more successful day than their, their partner or their dad or whoever, because they just listen like so well sometimes. Yeah. And I love that. And I, I'm, it's not really a stereotypical thing, but I'm a middle school teacher too. And the girls listen way better than the boys. There's, that's not even, that's a fact. That's not even, <laughs> that's not an opinion at all. So, um, no, I've, I've had some girls just have phenomenal days and it's, it's kind of funny to, and they're usually, they're usually newbies. So it's funny to watch them kind of outfish their, mm. their spouse or whatever. And, and, and I'm always like, yes, it's awesome. It's great. So, yeah. um, what, so what are some, what are some pros to, to being a female guide? Yeah. Think? I think, well, the biggest pro, I guess, even just for a business standpoint, is that a lot of lodges get calls of people asking for a female guide, and so that's you know they're wanted. So, I mean, that's good for me in that aspect. That's that's a pro. But also, I think that there's just there's a niche right that I can fill, and so I can, I if someone feels more comfortable with a woman guide, then. I can do that. And if I can encourage them and give them, you know, encourage them the way that I was encouraged, that's, that's more than anything that I could ask Absolutely. for. So yeah. that's, yeah. that's the biggest pro. And men, men or women, when you have new people on the water and they're intimidated, sometimes they just feel like, oh, I'm, I'm not going to be good at this and I'm just going to quit. Mm-hmm. And it's motivation. I mean, you gotta, you gotta be a motivator sometimes as a guide and, and, um, I think that's important with people who are new and it generally seems like a lot of time when you bring out, you know, 
a female or a male. Like they're they're they just want to learn it. They haven't done it before. It's new for them. They see that it's growing and that's really cool. And I I I think there's some some great things there. So, um, so any more pros you can think about with that? There's a need. There's definitely a need for them. And um, in Maine, we just don't have a lot here. So, like you said, you're kind of filling a a niche role and. Yeah, I, I think I even get surprised, too, because I was talking to Evelyn King, and, you know, there are female guides in Maine, like, more than you think. Yeah. It's just that the spotlight really isn't on them, and maybe that's because they don't want it to be, you know, and, sure. and or maybe, you know, it's just, it's it's not, but there's more than you think. And right. so I was actually pretty surprised by that, because I thought the same thing, too, like, oh, you know, that's just a few of us, but I think there is quite a few. Yeah, absolutely, and... and you know, with the pros also come some challenges. And the, before we had this, before we talked about doing this interview, you and I kind of talked on the phone about like, you know, there's that like stereotypical old white guy who is going to want to hire a guide. And they, one, may not feel comfortable hiring a female guide because it's kind of like, well, I don't want a girl showing me how to do things, right? One, so that's kind of a stereotypical thing. And then two, you're also young, right? So like, a lot of I've even found being younger, like there's older guys who just think I'm a I'm a cowboy and I'm gonna like right. put them in these like dangerous situations and cross rivers and all this stuff. That's gonna be something they can't do. So, I mean, there's definitely some challenges working across there. So, do you want to talk about what you think are some some challenges for being a female guide? Yeah. So, I mean, you hit it right on the head. The first challenge is that I'm young, yeah. and so um, it's always that comment. Well, you know you haven't put that much time into it or you don't know all about that or, you know, that kind of stuff. But I mean, I put in a lot of time on the water. Absolutely. So, and some of those things can get cleared up very quickly once you just start talking to people, right? Like you just start having communication yeah. and you start talking and, and people see that pretty quickly. Yeah. Um, and we all got to start somewhere. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like you're, how old are you? 20? I'm 26. You're 26. Okay. So like, I mean, you got to start somewhere, right? And obviously right. at 26, you don't have 20 years of experience. That's right. not, <laughs> that's not really feasible. So right. that's hard. That's definitely a hard thing as a starting out yeah. guy for sure. And so, yeah, I mean, so you just want to, you want to feel like you're like, no, I can do all of it. And you, you know, like I said, though, you start talking about it and you show them what you got. It's it pretty much all goes away yeah. very quickly. Now, when you guided last year, you said you did about 15 trips or so. Mm. Was it mostly women or was it – I know you said you did some stuff with kids, but was it mostly women? Was it couples? Was it a, a yeah. mix? Um, so I really only got called up for some of the trips that had women in it. Yeah. Um, but I did have all-male clients as well. So um, it was – I would say it was a pretty good, pretty good mix. Yeah. A little bit more male-dominated. Sure. And I'm sure this year with being full-time, it'll be more male-dominated. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, when so you have have you gone out with like two guys like there's no females, and you've guided like two guys. No, not yet. So not you always yet. always had a, a yeah. mix at least. Yeah. So, um, I was I was just curious to ask you like how did that feel or how do you, how do you think that'll feel for you? You think yeah. it's gonna feel different? Um, not for me. No, no. You're just like whatever. Yeah, it's good. <laughs> That's yeah. awesome. I yeah, I can usually I can get along with anybody. So it's really just. Like I said, if there's really any challenge, and I think maybe that's some advice that I would give to anyone who's feeling, you know, undermined or anything like that, is just be confident in your skill level and just tell people what you know, but be humble about it. Like, be true about your skill level. And also just, like, 
ask questions. Like people want to help you if you ask questions. If you reach out and you're truly interested, anybody's going to help you grow and absolutely, absolutely. And like that is the honest to god truth. And yep. so, you know, if I do go out with, and I will go out with only males, I, it's it's no problem. Yep. I can, I, I fish multiple different ways. So anything that. You know, if they want to fish streamers, if they want to nymph fish, if they want to drive, they want to do sinking line on a pond, they want to do anything like that. Yeah. You know, Euro nymph, whatever. We can do that. Yeah. So it's like I have something to offer to, to anybody. So it's not, That's you awesome. know, that doesn't intimidate me. Yeah, when you keep learning those things, it's just more tools you put in the box. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, I've actually, like, I know guides in the state who, like, they won't nymph. They don't know how. Right. And they don't want to learn how. So effective. Yeah. and and, and But <laughs> and the problem isn't, like... The problem isn't for those guides where, like, they're not going to be able to put people on fish. But sometimes, you know, you have a really – if you have some clients that are really, really great at fly fishing and, like, they're great at nymphing and stuff and the fishing just – you know, maybe they're not hitting streamers all morning when you're out with them or something. It's like you got to have those tools in your box to be able to be like, okay, so listen, so let's change up. Let's put a nymphing on. Let's do this, right? Like – and you'd be surprised how many people there don't do that because yeah. they're just not flexible or they don't have those tools in their box. So yeah. that's going to work in your favor for sure. And I, I like being able to to teach someone a totally different way of fishing too because, I mean, that's something that you really take back and you're like, okay, yep. I kind of know the basics of this now. I can go and I can try you know this somewhere else or back home where I feel comfortable making mistakes and whatever, but you at least have the foundational knowledge to try something different. And it's like that, that's a huge takeaway from guiding trips. That's usually what I do. If I go somewhere, I'm like, Hey, I want to learn this style that what you do here. Right. And yeah, so absolutely. It's cause you can take it back for you. It's, yeah. it's something you put in your box. Yeah. And, um, it's funny you say that. Cause whenever, like, whenever my wife and I go on a trip somewhere, the first thing I do is I jump on Google and I'm like, okay, where can I fish around mm-hmm. <laughs> Nashville? Where can I fish yeah. around this place? And then I start looking at guides because I'm like, well, I don't really know what I'm doing there. So, like, I'll hire a guide and go out. And, um, I mean, still to this day, there's so much that you learn from being on the water from somebody who's maybe from a different place or somebody who's just out there all the time, you know, and you're not on those waters. And that's the best part about hiring a guide, I feel like. is Like yeah. you said, you get to put some things in your – your toolbox learn some new stuff so definitely i think anybody can learn even from young guides i mean you're gonna learn new things and that's uh that's what it should be about when you go out you know a lot of people go on a guided trip for either something to do or because they've heard there's really big brook trout here right or something and yeah. it's like but besides that if you can teach them something that's gonna be a huge huge takeaway for people yeah. so that's awesome yeah. yeah one one piece of advice i'll give you as a new guide too is um when people contact you, get right back to them if you can, if yeah. you're in like self-home service, because I've found that to be a huge complaint with people who call me. They're like, listen, I called three guides and like, you're the first person to pick up or you're the first person to respond or whatever. And so that's simple, right? I and mean, we can all do that. So no, that's great advice. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Yeah. That's, that's something that I've found goes, goes kind of a long way. So, um, I, when we talked, you kind of gave me an outline here. You worked at a Orvis store. Yeah. Yeah, so I, in between undergrad and coming um, straight to Maine, I lived down in um, Dallas for seven months. Um, I was a scuba diver and field technician for Texas A&M. Okay. And you worked at, <laughs> you sort of worked at an Orvis store over there, though? Yeah, I worked at Orvis. Um, that was my first shot at retail. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, <laughs> which is fun. Yeah, yeah. 
It, it was it was fun because I was already totally committed to fly fishing. You know, right, I loved right. it, and I was living in Dallas, so I was like, "This is a huge city. Mm-hmm. I'm not comfortable. I need to, you know." So that's honestly why I, I was looking at Orbis for a job because I wanted a like a fishing job. And yeah, yeah. It was it was interesting. I learned a lot about retail and about the fly fishing community and all sorts of things. Yeah. yeah. Well, so would people come to the shop and like ask for advice and stuff? Yeah, yeah, they would. It was it was a really good experience. Um, there was sometimes, you know, working back in the fishing department that, you know, you'd get looked past or something, or and I'd, you know, very quickly it's, hey, do you want any help with that? You know, what are you trying to tie up? And I remember specifically one guy said. Oh, clink hammer. Do you know what that is? I said, yeah. I'm like, you need this size, you need this color, you need this material, that, you know, and it's like all this questioning that he had about me just like flew out the door. He was just like, oh, he's like, well, what do you time with? What do you do this? What, you know what I mean? And so like a little confidence goes a long way. Yeah. Yeah. That must be so fun as a female to like get to see that look on people's face though when they're kind of like, yeah, oh, mean, she gets just, it. Like yeah. she's not just here selling me a t-shirt, right? Like she's, right. she understands fly fishing, tying. She under, she knows what a clink hammer is, first of all. Yeah. Which most, most people are not in fly fishing and have no idea what that is. So yeah. And I mean, it's just, cool. I mean, a lot of time with that job too. Honestly, it was over, over 98% of the time. It was just they didn't even realize they were overlooking you you know what i mean yep. so it's yep. just yeah you just like i said you communicate and it can go a long way yep now do you think do you think you'll stay in maine kind of long term or are you just kind of going where so. the wind's taking you right now or? yeah i think so i'm really enjoying maine and i just finishing my degree i feel like i finally have time to explore and, and get out and actually look at some of these places and fish some of these places that i wanted sure to. are you going to go back to Channel lake camps this year yeah definitely cool yeah where is that uh, so if you drive up um, 95 all the way up to Ashland and then you go in through the gate, um, six-mile checkpoint that way, then you can get in. It's like 17 miles on the Pinkham Road. Okay. North and, Main Woods. And when you get there, are they like um, – because a lot of lodges like this in Maine, like they're situated on a lake and then there's like – those are like ponds you can like hike into and stuff or drive to or – Yeah, so mostly is driving um, from there for the most part. They It is on a lake. It's on Chandler Lake. But, um, then, you know, you stay in cabins there, eat there and everything like that. But then you do day trips out from there. Cool. And drive. Yeah. Yeah. Like if, if for people who have never been to a lodge, it's amazing, right? Like yeah. you just, you wake up, they feed you a huge breakfast and then you just go fish all day. They, they like pack a lunch there. Yep. Yeah. So yeah. You, you go with a guy or you don't go with a guy. You just go fishing all day and then you come back to like a platter of food usually, right? Yeah, it's definitely. Big meal and that's yeah, awesome. So. We'll give a little little plug there to Channel Lake Camps, right? <laughs> That's great. Um, what uh, what women's fly fishing groups are are you part of any in Maine? Yeah, um, the Maine Women's Fly Fishers. So we were just talking about that. The Facebook page, um, Evelyn King started that, and it's it's fantastic. Awesome. So so what do you guys do? Do you like um, like do you have people come speak? Do you guys go speak? How does like how does that work? Because I've never been. Yeah. I know Greg got to speak to them right yes yeah. i did yeah yeah so evelyn kind of picks all the speakers and and well you know ask the club hey what do you think about this what do you guys want to hear about that kind of stuff i talked to him last year about some entomology stuff um but it's just a really encouraging group like they're constantly you know having different um get togethers and fishing different places and always inclusive and it's just yeah it's that 
if you could get her on the show, that's one you got to speak to because I've she. I've been told that. Been she. Told that. that whole crew just like blew up. It's huge yeah. now. Yeah. I'd love to talk to her just about how it started, what kind of her goals were, and like. You know, where she thinks it's going from here and stuff, too. Oh, yeah. Which is really great. She's great to talk to. Yeah, and I know she does some tying down at at Eldridge Brothers, too, so maybe I can run into her down there. But I got to reach out to her. She's definitely somebody I want to get on the show. You're, like, the literally, like, 20th person to tell me that. (laughs) That's great. Yeah. Um, So we'll transition over over a little bit. So you you are doing guiding in the spring, summer, fall, right? And then you've kind of started your own fly tying business? Yeah. So, um... Do you want to you want to talk about that a little bit? Sure. Yeah. yeah. I honestly, I just wanted to start it. I wanted a little income in the winter, and it kind of took off more than I thought. And yeah. so, um, I got a big order from Eldridge Brothers, and I'm working through that right now. And then just honestly, just kind of laying low and just reaching out via Instagram. And so, if anybody you know wants something tied or um, any traditional patterns tied or things like that, I can yeah. help out wherever yeah. I can. So Greg is actually your competition, kind of in a way. Ah, uh, yeah, kind <laughs> of. I you can take all the traditional patterns. Though. There you go. I have no interest in tying the traditional, so that's why I see some of your patterns, and I'm just like so jealous because I cannot do that. I can't sit down and tie thirty, you know, woolies in a row. I, I can't do it, or like a you know wood special or something. The, like I, the I creative don't, side of you doesn't. No, no, not creative. My, I'm not mentally strong enough to, to do it. Like it has nothing to do with creativeness. It's just yeah. I don't have the patience or the ability to focus for that long I, on on just a repetitiveness. And I, I'm just astounded at. You'll see pictures of people with like a hundred flies in a box that are the same exact thing. Yeah. And I'm just like, I wish I would give you know, my right arm to be able to do that because it would make life a lot easier. I would just tie a hundred of, you know, my favorite nymph that I use the most in right. the season and then I'm good for the next five years. But I just, I can't do it because <laughs> I, I do stuff, like do stuff, you know, that is intricate and takes a long time. And then I'm just like, well, I did this once and I'm like, all right, what am I going to do next? I'm going to do something else now. Right. And I, so I'm super jealous of people that can do that sort of mass bunch because I, I wish I had that skill set and I, I, don't, I do not at all. Well, so. I am just starting out, so who knows how quickly I'll get burnt out with that. True, but. Yeah, true. <laughs> true. I think I think people do at some point, and, and, but at the same time, like, I love that about Eldridge Brothers, how they have, like, most of their flies are tied by main people or they're tied uh, by people in the U.S. They don't just, you know import them from other countries and for yep. cheap and stuff like yeah i think that's i think that's pretty cool because you know fly shops are all different and a fly shop like elders brothers i mean they have really great quality stuff so that's awesome you're contributing i have to check some yeah. out when i go down there yeah what, what what patterns have you tied honestly all woolly buggers all woolly buggers I have yep. thin mints you know all sorts of all sorts of woolly bugger variations awesome yeah, yeah. awesome i'll take a look at some when i go down sunday yeah. That's great. Any with uh, a hot orange head? Any? Have you done any <laughs> hot orange heads? Because we had a discussion uh, a few we or last week about how we hate these these like hot you know egg suck sucking leech yeah. patterns, and we were fishing uh, for browns and we started using them sort of like jokingly I guess and 
Aaron actually landed a 19-inch brown on it as like, a, and we were like, just so like, oh my it's god, it's hilarious because it's what, it, are we, what is going on? My, <laughs> admittedly, my woolly, I have a big woolly bugger box, and I don't even reach into it that often. Mm-hmm. I'm like such like a, I'm such like a nymph nymph guy, and then I go to, um, I've been loving like articulated streamers mm-hmm. and trying that stuff out. And it's Absolutely. like the woolly bugger just gets pushed to the back of the box yeah. in, a, in a way. And it was just hilarious that we kind of pulled out this flyer. I was like, dude, I tied all these up because I saw them on some guy's Instagram page. And then I was like, I never use these. Like what yeah. fish wants a big bright orange bee, yeah. you know, in front of a woolly bugger? Yeah. Like there's, and it's just, it's, it goes to speak to how fly fishing really is because there is no, you know, all the bleaches out there, right, that are eating mm-hmm. a big orange egg because right. we don't even have big it orange makes no eggs sense right. it makes no well, sense maybe the rainbows but I, there's no rainbows where we were so that's why i laugh at people who think they know what they're talking about because <laughs> they do not right. once somebody thinks they know what they're doing i just laugh at them because you know you get put in a situation like that and it goes against all of your instincts everything that you may have known and you're like this has no reason that it should be working right now it's january you right. know what i mean we're standing in the middle of a river Throwing this mat, you know, these, these big leech sucking things with the bright orange egg on the front and these fish are just crushing it. And we were just like, I, you know, so that's why I like fly fishing though. Cause it is, you know, so it's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, what's the name of your company? It's called beadhead fly fishing. Beadhead. Yeah. Okay. Um, and I saw, I kind of saw on your arm there, you got a little tattoo. Yeah. Is that the, the that's, logo? Yeah. It's close to the logo. That's awesome. Yeah. So we'll that's get- a, that's a pink squirrel. It originated in the Driftless region of Wisconsin. Yep. Um, and it's just, yeah, it's a killer fly out there. But um, it was the first fly that I ever caught a trout on. Oh, nice. And so it was just kind of like a, you know. Sentimental. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, sentimental thing yeah, for cool. sure. Yeah, it's yeah. cool. So I, my sister and I actually redrew the the pink squirrel, and then that's the logo for the bead head. That's great. Yeah. Have you fished that pattern here in Maine? I have. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. With success? Yes. Yes, of course. It's, yes. Great. it's a great pattern. Oh, it is great. It's a great pattern. Yeah. <laughs> it kind of looks, is it a, is it a nymph or a streamer? No, it's a nymph. It's yeah. a nymph. Yeah. And you, you heavily weight the head, so it actually almost rolls. So oh, it's supposed to be like a little scud pattern. Yeah. Yeah. Do you tie it jig style or do you tie it normal? Normal. Normal. Okay. Yep. That's cool. Yeah. That's awesome. Maybe I'll have to order a few and give that a try. I'm always, yeah. <laughs> I'm a, uh, like I said, I fish nymphs so much. And I'm actually, it's funny that I'm, like I'm teaching this fly tying class of beginners because I'm not on your level. I'm not on Greg's level, but, uh, but it's just, it's, it's a beginner thing. And it's kind of funny that like, I mean, I honestly just tie like some nymphs and emergers because I just lose a ton of them. Like I look at it totally <laughs> economically based i don't <laughs> i don't look at it in terms of like being creative or trying new flies i'm like i lose a ton of nymphs so i'm just gonna tie a bunch of nymphs i buy like all my dry flies i'm, I'm I'll admit that i ordered a bunch from you actually yeah. Yeah, you did. recently so i'm like i don't lose them as much so i'm like oh, I'll, just, I'll just buy them but every, everything with me is economic based so um all right that's great so let's take a little break here and then when we come back uh you and greg are gonna talk some some science stuff on the third episode of the Maine Fly Fishing Podcast, I was fortunate enough to interview Nate White of Northwoods Fly Company. Nate is a premier fly tire who ties unique fly patterns that work for many species of fish. If you've been thinking about a custom-tied fly that you'd like to fish, contact Nate and he will help you create that pattern you've been thinking about. 
Visit northwoodsfly.com to check out his work or check out his Instagram account at n.w.flyco. Nate will also be at the Western Maine Fly Fishing Expo in Bethel, Maine, which takes place on Saturday, March 21st at the Bethel Inn Resort. So stop by and check out his awesome flies. If you or someone you know is affiliated with a fly fishing related organization or business in Maine and would like to advertise on the Maine Fly Fishing Podcast, check out our Instagram page at the Maine Fly Fishing Podcast and shoot me a message. I run ads for free as this podcast is meant to be a nonprofit venture that promotes the Maine fly fishing industry and educates folks about the awesome fly fishing opportunities that we have here in Maine. I'm back here with Megan Hess and Greg Labonte, and uh, Greg's going to actually ask Megan some questions and kind of lead the show for a little bit. And but before we do that, I wanted to give a uh, I want to give a quick shout out. As many of you know, I'm a I'm a middle school teacher in South Portland, and I want to give a quick shout out to the kids at Memorial who've been listening to the podcast. Um, if and if you didn't know this, also um, we do a, an enrichment day at the school. I've posted this on my uh, Instagram page. And, uh, and we did some fly tying and, and this year I had 12 kids participate and they each got a kit donated, uh, from Eldridge Brothers Fly Shop. Nice. So they went home with basically a hundred dollar kits for free. So shout out to Eldridge Brothers Fly Shop for, for, uh, donating those. Um, if you're a big fly tire, they actually do the flies for kids event and they'll be, uh, they'll be raffling, doing the raffle, uh, at their expo in March. So what that is, is if you have like a dozen flies of one pattern that you like to, t- to tie, uh, you can donate it to Eldridge Brothers. They put all these flies together and each year they usually get between like five and $7,000 worth of flies donated and they sell raffle tickets for $10 and one lucky winner is going to get all of those, all of those flies. Um, it's usually in the thousands of flies that they That's get awesome. donated each year. That's really cool. And with the proceeds, what they do is they buy, uh, beginner fly tying kits from Wopsy. And, uh, and then if you have a child out there, so kind of a PSA here, if you have a child who's kind of getting into fly tying or you want them to kind of get into it, um, you can go to Eldridge Brothers and they're pretty willing to give out kits to, to kids. And it's all about just getting kids into fly tying, which is such a super cool cause. So you still have till about mid-March to, to get those flies in if that's something you're interested in. So um, anyways, so let's go. Uh, Greg's going to start asking some questions here to Megan. Cool. Well, Aaron, thanks for uh, having me back. I appreciate it. It's been yeah. a good talk so far. For and sure. Megan has been super awesome this entire time. So really happy to uh, finally meet her because I just know her through Instagram like a lot of people. <laughs> and so it's nice to put a, uh, a face to the name. Um, thanks, Greg. So my first question is, you talked about your new fly tying business, and I just wanted to know a little bit more about what are your future goals with that? Where do you plan on going, and, and kind of what is the path that you see yourself taking? Yeah, so I, I really wanted to create um, instructional classes, so a lot like what I first participated in with the women's clinic, um, kind of start to finish, you're very, you know, st- starting out fly fishing, and you're learning how to tie knots, you know, what the insects resemble, what flies, you know, how to even pick out these flies in fly boxes when you see them all in there and how to cast and that kind of stuff. And so putting together a class like that where I can take someone who wants to learn, who's eager to learn, and get them to a comfort level that they can do it 
by themselves by the end of it. And so I'm putting together educational um, tools right now that I can actually take around to either diff- different lodges or, you know, even to people's houses if they want, you know, to rent out or do something like that. So that's that's kind of a, a big goal of mine. Yeah, and I think that's lacking in Maine for sure. And I know out west there's a lot of opportunities for stuff like that. And here in Maine it's there's a lot of people that fly fish, but there's not a lot of opportunity there. So that's great. I really I, I wish you the best with that. Thank you. Um so changing gears kind of, can you just briefly fill the listeners in on what you've been working here um, in your master's here in Maine? Yeah, so I was using aquatic insects to measure mercury concentrations in water bodies. And so for me, that's really, really interesting. Maybe, you know, for non-science people that might not be, but for me, I think that's really fascinating. And so I was just curious how... How is your work research kind of carried over into, say, your business or your fly fishing sort of adventures that you've had here? How is that carried over? Yeah. So, you know, if you think about mercury goes onto the landscape and it can, from rain or, you know, dry deposition, basically it's coming down from the sky and in rain and it's going into our water bodies. And there's a chemical change that bacteria do that make it bioavailable or make it so that organisms can uptake it. So thinking about the smallest little bacteria or insects that are in streams, they're uptaking this mercury and that's going to get transferred up the food web. So fish are going to eat the insects and then they're going to, you know, they're going to eat a bunch of insects and so they're going to gain a lot more mercury. And then you have, you know, something like a pike that's going to eat a whole bunch of fish and then they're going to get even higher mercury, right? So that's called bioaccumulation. And that kind of energy flow is something that I think about a lot in fishing and how different hatches at different times that, you know, if you have a huge mayfly hatch and these fish are just, you can see them, they're going around and they're just gorging, they're over and over and they're just eating all these insects in a great amount of time. And how is that energy now flowing into that, that fish? And so that is one aspect of it that I, that I think about. But also the biggest thing is the insect life cycles. So what is actually happening to, you know, a mayfly nymph when it's crawling around on the bottom and it's time for it to emerge? What happens in that transformation? And how can you mimic that in fishing styles? And so, you know, that's when you get into swinging soft tackles like an emerging insect or, you know, or what happens to a caddis when it goes dormant into a pupil stage. Like some people just don't understand that there's two different life cycles of aquatic insects and so being able to have that knowledge and mimic the different ways that they grow Mm -hmm. and what their behaviors is huge yeah and i don't for people who have taken an entomology class which is the study of bugs i guess in, in layman's terms it's so complicated i mean it's incredible what goes on underneath the water that you can't see and I am in that same boat as you. I took a few entomology classes and I've done a little bit of bug stuff. And when you can cross it over into fly fishing, your whole sort of perspective changes on the sport. Like it just, things that I used to use, I don't use anymore because I'm like, why would a fish be looking for that? Mm -hmm. So I think that that's some information that's just incredible to have in your arsenal and probably makes you a better guide 
you know, then, I mean, I don't want to speak too much. I don't want to cast doubt on some of the guys out there, like Aaron sitting next to us, but, like, those people... Fair enough. Who have, who have that extra knowledge is so powerful that it really is that, that, yeah, that insect stuff. And I know that yeah. Aaron is interested in it. I know that he wants to know that stuff. He asks all these questions, and I still ask them all the time, What like, what's happening, yeah. you know, because it's... There is an answer down there, and the more stuff you know, you know. I think it just makes it more fun, though, too, and Mm. it makes it, you remember it easier. So, like, I had clients last year that wanted to fish the hex hatch, and it was like, you know, we first fished sinking line with a hex nymph, right? And we were stripping it up, and we were imitating that kind of emerging, and I was teaching them, this is why we're doing this. And then when the hatch comes on, then we're going to switch to a dry fly, right? And you explain that cycle, and they're going to remember that long more right. than, you know, far, farther along than if I just say, we're first going to fish an M, then we're going to fish a dry, right? Right, right? So it's just, it's again, it just goes back to teaching and sharing what you know. And that's, that's like, cool information, yeah, you know, that, like, like, I can't offer that, you know, like, that 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 is, yeah, that's really cool. I uh, find myself, like, explaining, like, you know, people people don't even know what a caddis is when you come out. You know, they're new, and you're like, then you start explaining the life cycle to them. Like it starts off as an egg, it turns into a larva, and then it goes to the top. And it, when it gets up to the the surface film, it you know starts chucking its skin, right, and gaining its wings. And that's like the best time for fish to come pick mm-hmm. up. So that's like why like a lot of emerger flies work. You know, mm-hmm. right. like that's the best way I can explain to people. Mm-hmm. However in the rivers that I fish, like I can't see that stuff happening. Mm-hmm. It's right. dark tannic water. Yeah, right. And I have like, I'm just going based off of like what I've read and like learned about. But at the same time, it's cool that you've like studied that and actually like seen it. Mm-hmm. Right. That's, that's, yeah, that's very cool. Yeah. Stuff. And when you were, I know people probably glossed over it earlier, but you said that you had to ID aquatic larvae or insects mm-hmm. to species. To species. Yes. And, can you just shed some light on how okay. difficult that actually is mm-hmm. for the listeners who have never done it before? Sure. Um, so <laughs> sometimes, all right, so you have you have a key and you can go down. So first it'll start something like, does it have three tails or two tails, right? And mm-hmm. they're called Cersei, but for, you know, just talking through this, mm-hmm. three tails, two tails, right? Stonefly or mayfly. It's, mm-hmm. You know, you, and you start to get more f- fine scale detail as you're going down this key and sometimes it can literally be you're looking at this larva that is a millimeter like you can hardly see it with the naked eye some kind of coronamid or midge um and you're counting hairs on like Jeez. the <laughs> small section of the head or something yeah. right like so it's like absurd or Do like midges, caddis, like, midges? yeah the larva yeah. No. No. So so it's kind of hard because diptera the the diptera order is very diverse. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't have tails of what you're thinking about, like mayflies or stoneflies, sure. but yeah. they do have adaptations that you know appendages and things like that that'll come off. But like mosquito larvae have a big siphon tube at the end of their their behind, basically that they can breathe atmospheric air. So like so that's not a tail, but it's a long appendage that's at the end, right? So it's right. just crazy stuff. Yeah, yeah. it's like, it's insane. It yeah. really is insane. And like when you said ID to species, I chuckled inside my head a little bit because yeah. I have done that, and it's uh, it's crazy. It's it's just insane. It really is. The stuff that you have to look for is like you're like 
you would never think to look for that because one you can't see it mm-hmm. and number two you're just like I didn't even know there were rows of hairs on the head of this you <laughs> right. know why you know so I thought I think yeah, that's I have cool. no idea what you guys were talking you about know, so it's it's it really it's like it's a world that's unknown it's a world that's unknown mm-hmm. and it's just it's super cool so it was that's cool awesome. to hear you say I th- that I feel like that. I can confidently ID a nymph when I look at it like I can definitely tell what a car, uh, caddis larva looks like yeah yeah and then. The only way I ever, like, can identify a stonefly versus a mayfly as a nymph, I feel like I just do it by size. Mm, yeah. Which, there are big in mayfly nymphs, but is there ever, like, stonefly nymphs that are just as small as those little mayfly nymphs? Absolutely. No kidding. Yeah. Well, I would have never known. So maybe I'm looking at stonefly nymphs all the time. Yeah. So so look for look for the tails. There's three. There's two filaments at the end of a stonefly tail, okay. and there's three at the end of a mayfly tail. Okay. But sometimes it's hard if you take them out of the water; it'll they'll actually all stick together, so that makes it difficult. Sure. But that's that's telltale. That's, that's for nymphs anyway. Yeah. yeah. What's what's your uh, not to interrupt? But what's your mm-hmm. what's your favorite uh, mayfly nymph um, imitation? Oh, I'm 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 simple. I just like the pheasant tail. Yeah. A yeah. lot because it can mimic. Any species of mayfly, really, and it's, sure. you know, as long as you change up, the silhouette is just, it's perfect for a lot of different mayflies, and you change up the shape, and you can hit multiple, multiple genuses and species of mayflies, yep. so. Yeah. Do you ever tie, like, small stonefly nymphs, like, below a size 12? I don't really tie stoneflies, and I should, but, like, little yellow sallies, awesome. Yeah. yeah. They're, they're, like, mayfly nymphs, then, when they're... So, little stonefly nymphs, like, um, the yellow sallies are it's basically just a small yellow stonefly yeah and there's like neon it's like highlighter yellow yeah really is really the nymph. bright and the nymph and the adult i know they have them in some water bodies of water in maine and mm-hmm. i don't think in western maine where i usually fish I, we don't really see them or have them but i know like up on the west branch they get them a lot yeah. and stuff and yeah. yeah i don't know if i've ever seen that so yeah it's, it's pretty cool i i tie stonefly nymphs as small as 20 20 size 20 wow yeah because wow. they're so like when you know you think about it, they're laid as an egg, you know, mm-hmm. and then they're hatched, and so for a period of time they are very very small. They're small, right? And if you know when the majority of those insects should be hatching, then you can throw that fly, yep. you know, because maybe outside of that time it might not be useful because there won't be a whole lot of them hatching. But if so, if you know, you know that whatever, let's say you know September, there's a lot of stoneflies. Uh, eggs that are hatching then okay in September maybe I throw a size 20 stonefly nymph and that's what the fish are looking for because they're very prevalent in the water that's so, interesting yeah so that's that's how entomology and studying bug that's how it's helped me in yeah. fly fishing is and, and sounds like Megan as well is you can kind of tailor you know your if you know what's going on in the water you can kind of tailor what you're throwing at that time absolutely and that I mean, it It makes sense in your mind. There are still times when it does not work, you know, of course, it's like true. fly fishing. But for the most part, it, it usually works out, you know, yeah. in, in the long run. So so I've, I heard this thing like a long time ago, and you guys both being like science people and like bug people. So um, with mayfly hatches, do they get like lighter as the season goes on? Because I've heard that they – I've heard that they do – and the reasoning behind it is that the trees get lighter, so they're trying to, like, camouflage. Is so, this true? So there is 
Um, so think about what color what color are the stoneflies that you see in the winter? For the they're most black. part, they're black, right? Yeah, they're dark. Yeah. And the theory goes for that is that this they need the sunlight to to warm up. Interesting. So when they're black, they're going to get that against that snow. Um, and so the lighter um, is actually a phenomenon that you see. I don't know if it's correlated with the trees. Yeah. I'm I'm going to guess not, but I. Th- I either read that or I dreamt it, but I can't tell you. What <laughs> so. I am on the same page in yeah. that it's temperature based. Okay. And so the hotter it is in the summer, insects they can't regulate um, like you and I their body temperature, and so they're reliant on their environment to regulate their body temperature. Mm-hmm. And so if you're a small insect and you're you know you're a mayfly and you're kind of sensitive and you're not exactly the most robust insect out there. Sorry, mayflies. But you can't be black because you would overheat then you wouldn't be able to fly. You'd probably die very quickly. So you're lighter in shade that way you don't overheat as quickly. Right. And that's that's what I I have an understanding of. As, now, as I have this weird like observation in the places that I fish where like with caddis, not to switch it up too much, but like with caddis, I see a lot of green-bodied ones mm-hmm. in like June, and then I get like these really small tan ones, and then I get really like dark ones also in the summer, and then coming back to September, I actually start seeing like green ones again, mm-hmm. like green-bodied green-bodied ones, and then there are other years where in the month of June, and this is me just catching caddis, in the month of June, I don't see anything with a green body and they're all just like tan or they're they may be even darker like a darker brown or a dark gray or something that that year and it's one of those things where it's like i know out west people fish and they know like okay this hatch starts now and this is exactly what happens but i feel like from my own observation in new england it's not that predictable Mm -hmm. you know and and i'm curious like and i don't know if you guys know the answer to that or anything but i'm curious like why do those why do those caddis not come out the same time every year? Well, so they come out around the same time, but why are they not the same exact color every year? You know, why are some green and then some years they're they're not, they're darker? So, yeah, so I think there's there's maybe two things that are going on there is that, so there's a lot of, let's say we're just going to talk about caddis. There's a lot, there's hundreds, thousands of species of caddis just in Maine. That's so you think about that first and then, you know, um, some insects are univolting, which means that they take one year to complete a cycle, right? In one year, they're going to be from egg to adult. They're really rapid at growing. Some are semivolting, which means that you have two or, and then marivolting is more than that or whatever. But so you have different cohorts of insects that are coming off. So you might've had eggs that were laid and the next June, they're going to emerge and they're going to come off. Whereas Maybe a few months from that, you have another cohort of that same species that's going to come off again. Does that make sense? Yeah. So it's kind of almost like a developmental lag, all based on temperature, like what Greg was saying. If you took your date, let's say you logged it over 10 years, you would see a pattern. I heard about that crazy logging system that you got going on. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, if you logged it, (laughs) if you logged it over 10 years, you would see a pattern. You would. Yes, you would. And you would you would be able to pinpoint it rather accurately. Right. Um now granted it would take it takes a long time and it's a very slow developing system, but 
you could accurately describe every decade within a certain degree, though, um, what was going to come off the water. Right. Yeah. It would just take you a little while. Yeah. And I'll share that secret with you off the air if off you would air. like. Yes. That's fine. That <laughs> yes. Great. yes. I have so. a question. I don't want to hurt. I don't hurt either of your fly tying businesses. However, <laughs> do you? And I'll ask this question to both of you. Do you truly think that a fish sees color? Like I think they see a silhouette, right, and like a profile. And I'm all I'm huge on presentation, but I just feel like in the waters that I fish, the fish are it's mostly rivers. They're opportunistic. They're gonna come up to something that looks like it's doing what it's supposed to be doing. And I don't get a lot of turnaways, but when I do, I like to blame it on presentation. I don't think a fish swims up to a fly and says, Oh geez, that's really olive green when it should be, you know, tan this, mm-hmm. this time of year, right? So it's like I think as fishermen, we like to blame the fish not biting on something, mm-hmm. and sometimes like color comes down to it. So I'm curious what your thoughts on like that topic are. I'll let you answer. I first. want I <laughs> want Greg to go first. Um, okay, so unless the fish has an inordinate amount of time to inspect the fly, I do not believe that color has anything to do with absolutely anything. Okay. Not even a little bit. Not even a little bit. Because think about a trout sitting in the stream. Right. All right? Stuff is coming by this trout all day long. Twigs, sticks, debris, little insects. It does not have the time to accurately inspect what is coming by its face. And so instead of looking at color, because if it was just reliant on color, they would be eating sticks all day long. They would be eating twigs all day long, little bits of leaf all day long. And that's not beneficial for them. So they wouldn't waste their energy, especially in a river where the current, it's sort of energetically costly. So instead, I believe that they're looking for basically four things. I think that they're really looking, and this is sort of branching off of a guy named Bob Wyatt. He's out west. He's a big steelhead guy. Um, I think that they're looking for one size. Yep. So a particular size of insect that is common in the water, whatever's hatching, you yep. know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, silhouette, especially for dry flies. If you have ever, have you ever gone in a river and looked up? Have you ever done that? I implore you to do that if I you have, have not. not. Okay, well, so this not. summer, go into the, the Megalloway. Or sure, go into some one, river, yeah. Go down in with goggles and look up. Yep. And then have someone or yourself just float a fly across. Okay. And see if you can see the color. You cannot. It's black. It's okay. black. So this looks dark to you, yes, right? It's a silhouette. So sure. fish are looking for a silhouette that's common. Yeah. Um, they're also looking for a posture. Scuds, they have a very curved back. And so a fish is not looking for a scud that is linear because there are no linear scuds. They're right. all curved. Yeah. And finally is behavior. How are they behaving? Is, you know, caddis, as we all know, are very frantic. They don't just sit on the water. Yeah, they're your ADHD. Exactly. They're going crazy. And so fish very rarely (laughs) are looking for a dead, drifted caddis. It doesn't happen that often. And that's why, for me especially, skated caddis work very well. Twitched caddis work very well. Dead, drifted caddis, they don't work any better than a skated or a twitched caddis. Sure. And... That's because the behavior of a caddis is very erratic. They're bouncy. Mayflies, they just sit on the water. And so whenever I fish a mayfly, 
I very rarely try to twitch it. Yep. Right? I try to dead drift it because that's their behavior. Yeah, and that fish... Well, they call them sailboats. Fish, exactly. Fish can key in on the behavior. Yeah. For sure. And, yeah. and I've seen it many, many times where fish are keying in on a certain behavior of an insect. Yeah. And that is what I look for. And none of those things include color, which is why I don't think the color matters. <laughs> right. Unless unless you have an inordinate amount of time to inspect the fly. So like a mm. lake or a really slow moving stream where the fish has has time to look at it and inspect it before it goes by it. Sure. Then That's I think really yes, slow. then I think color matters. Okay. But in those sort of quicker streams that are flowing by where a million things are flowing by the fish, I do not think right. the color matters. So I think go ahead. I think so I do agree that it is size and shape or silhouette. Mm-hmm. Um but like to answer the question, I guess like very briefly, like do fish see color? Yes they do, because they have rods and cones. Yes. They can see color. Yes. They so can. that yeah. out of that question. Um, I guess I'll have to just jump in and say that color does matter, mm-hmm. not to a scale that shape or size by any means. Um, and also going off of the behavior thing as well, I think it's super interesting, like hearing how you guys have seen caddis and it's skittering and they're erratic because that's exactly how I would, right? Like, sure. um, I also encourage you to look at different mayfly behaviors with ova positioning or, or laying eggs as well um, because there's bombers, there's there's dippers, there's sure. ones that go underwater to go, and I can send you guys papers. That's uh, mm-hmm. one paper that's really, really good. That'd be cool. But it's basically just talking about these different – actually, it'll be in Dunn Magazine. Um, mm. It's a mayfly behavior. Awesome. Very cool. Anyway, um, but it's it's very interesting to see that there are, you know, different yeah. ways of and I'm like a huge proponent of that as like mm. fish dry flies different ways. Because like they're yeah. just it's yes. so it could absolutely. be so fun. I yep. am a huge component of not dead drifting every time. Sure. Like absolutely not. Yeah, absolutely. And that's sort of an old school way to think and there's like there's so some people do it and they're successful. And yeah. Oh no, it's a great way sure. to fish. Yeah. It's just, for sure. yeah, but I think that there are better ways to do at certain times. Yeah. There is a time to dead drift. There's also a time to skate and twitch and yeah. jump and yeah. do yeah. all kinds of crazy things. I've I've heard of guys putting in like a like an elk hair caddis dry as their dropper on a nymph rig. Yeah. So that that elk hair because do they they go to the bottom sometimes to lay their eggs right? What's that? Like caddis? Do they do it? Um. Do so they do they dive not, too? Not necessarily caddis, mm-hmm. um, but mayflies, mayflies I know too. for sure do. Actually, yeah. betas a lot of genuses of betas do. So if you yeah. put on a if you put on a dry fly as your dropper and had it like rising up in the column, that could be like a mayfly that just deposited its eggs in the bottom. And yeah, I mean, sure. or if you're, you know, Which a lot of people don't do that, right? Right. 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 Like, oh, I'm gonna put a kink all of this thing and make right. it float. Yeah, it's supposed to be yeah. on top. Or like if you're at the if you're at the end of your dry fly drift and it gets sink, sunken in maybe like a little rock eddy and starts mm-hmm. going down, just leave it for a second. Yeah, and just see because that's where on the backside of rocks, if say if, you know flowing water on the backside of rocks is where those mayflies are going to crawl under mm-hmm. because they're away from the current. They're in kind of that dead velocity zone. They can crawl down, get all the way to the bottom, and that's where they lay their eggs. So they'll crawl down the rocks. They don't necessarily just come down nope. and just yeah. nope. dive they, through the water. They have to because they can't swim very well, yeah, right? Gotcha. They just wiggle, and that's what – so they have to crawl down that rock face and cling to oh, that rock. that's so cool. Yeah. That's so cool. I didn't yeah. know that. Yeah. So that's I, I feel I feel like kind of I can be a little instigator sometimes. So a lot of my <laughs> friends, a lot of my friends grow up to tell you that. Um, so my question about like color is like, that's the thing is like you look at flies. There are like tens of thousands of flies, mm. different flies out there. 
And then there's like, you know, 15 different colors for each fly. And it's like, is it really necessary to have like uh, a caddis with like 18 different colors on? You know what I mean? Don't get me wrong. I do like I tie midges and certain flies with uh, hot spots where you put like a little orange bright spot. So does that matter? I don't really know. I do it anyways just to cover all my bases. Yeah. But I think it um, gives a fish a different look though. Because sometimes, and I don't, that's the other question, right? It's like everybody's like, well, if they just keep seeing the same fly, like, but how do you know that a fish is seeing, you know, constantly seeing gold, you know, gold bead PTs that are size 18? You know what yeah. I mean? It's like, no, and yeah. then Greg puts one on the hot spot, and all of a sudden he's just snagging, right, catching right, fish everywhere, exactly. right? Right, like, right? So yeah, no, I don't. <laughs> but back back to your original point of of the four things that I said, another one major that you brought up is presentation. Yeah, that is a large one, but that kind of falls in line with behavior. Sure. Mm-hmm. And they're kind of to get. I, I see them as the same exact thing. I see them as presentation and behavior are literally the same exact thing because that's. What you're trying to do, you're trying to present to the fish a natural fly or something that's behaving in a particular way to make the fish think that it's not a fake insect, it's a real insect. And so I think that presentation and behavior are literally the same exact thing. Awesome. So I like that answer because it means I can probably spend less time with the vice, which is fine with me. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I don't need to tie like 18 different colors of the same fly. What I so this year I have a. <laughs> it's a horrible. It's a horrible question for the fly fishing industry and for your fly tying <laughs> businesses, but it uh, makes me feel good because I don't love fly tying. I do it economically, mm-hmm. as we talked about. So. This year I have a small, like a small test going. I've tied all my common patterns all in black. All Interesting. Black. All black. And I just am going to see, and that will tell me. And so by the end of the year, I will come back to you, and I'll either say Megan (laughs) is right and color matters a little bit, or I am supreme and I know everything about what fish want for sure. I'm excited excited to hear that. So that's what we'll see. I'll probably go fishless the whole year. That's like the uh, Yvonne Chouinard story. Have you ever read that about him? He just fished stuff with uh, pheasant tail all year. So he fished for like, he fished for fish in the ocean, he fished for trout, he fished for bass, and he just used pheasant tail to tie all of his flies. So some of it were like bigger, smaller, mm-hmm. obviously, and he caught fish all year long mm-hmm. on just See? stuff used with pheasant tail, which I'm is, telling you. which is pretty cool. If you Maybe think about he was it. a good fly fisherman, you know? I'm sure he <laughs> is. He only owns Patagonia, <laughs> you know, so. Um, okay. And then the, the last question that I had, um, for you, Megan is, you know, you're very knowledgeable and very educated and. I just wanted to get your opinion on what you think the the greatest or most imminent ecological environmental threat to Maine water bodies is. And if anything, what could be done about it? Yeah, so I think um, the biggest threat to water bodies anywhere is land use. I think that is... a to me, that's my number one answer, and it's land use can mean many things. So um, anthropogenic changes, which means human changes to the land, and that could be a dam, that could be you know, rerouting waters for irrigation, that can be agriculture and the way that nutrients get dumped into rivers. Um, yeah, this endless. Could be natural right? disaster stuff too, though, right? Like... You have hurricanes that wash out a brook that comes into a big river or something like that. Yeah, but I think for I guess for the focus of, of man-made detrimental, yeah, it's yeah. more man-made. Yeah. Right, so sure. yep, 
and those changes to to freshwater. Yeah. And like what can be done about that? So, you know, nitrogen use, fertilizers and stuff on say your lawn if you're if you, let's say you live on a lake and you want to fertilize your lawn, mm-hmm. you know, obviously I know and you know and maybe not everyone, but no, that can have some negative impacts on sort of lake ecosystems. Mm-hmm. But what what do you think could combat those anthropogenic impacts? Like what's something, so land use, you know, well, what's something that can be done? Is there anything that can be done? Are we like, you know, are we hopeless or is there something that can be done? You know? Um, so my, my first reaction to that question was how, a, like land use, right. Or like human impact. How are we still seeing pictures of people leaving trash outside? That's my very first, like, that was my very yeah. first reaction to that. Mm-hmm. Why is that still a thing? Like, that people have to pick up trash. So that, I'd say, was, would be my number one thing. Mm-hmm. Stop leaving trash at other, you know, places. Or if you're going out fishing and you see trash, pick it up. Mm-hmm. Like, the whole fill the net thing, yeah. you know. The end of your day yeah. fishing, fill up your net with trash, bring it back with you. Like, those little things do make impacts. And if everybody does it, it makes a huge impact. So that's my, that was my immediate reaction. Mm-hmm. Kind of bigger scale is... It's it's hard. How do you change land use? So like, you know, you think of other sustainable ways to get you know the resources that you need, and that's you know that's not a hard thing to address. I mean, I don't know. Let's say let's think of just dams for now. What is that dam doing to the water? So it's making it most likely a constant flow. So you're not having the fluctuation of that flow. And some insects, for example, rely on fluctuation, on seasonal fluctuation. And that's the way that they know when to lay their eggs and when to emerge and when to, you know. And so they behave differently and then trout know, oh, this is the time I can feed on them. And this is, I am banking for this resource. It's predictable for them. It's predicted. Yeah. And so when you change the flows like that, so that's just one example, right? Okay, but how do you change that? Because Maine is heavily reliant on dams. Heavily. Like well, hold on. Are, 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 are we reliant now or were we reliant is the question. You know, it's, it's, we've talked about this, and it's a, it's a, Maine's a logging state, and we have a lot of our dams from the days that we had mills. Now a lot of those dams are either, one, not being used for anything, or two, they're being used for hydro, which is green energy, right, which is something good for the, the world. Mm-hmm. But I guess I guess my, like, input on it is if – if we are spreading the fishing gospel, so to say, and everybody was all about fishing, I think we wouldn't have a lot of these things like dams and people would be more aware of, you know, putting trash on the ground, right? And like just those things because they don't understand the, the impacts. I mean, I know of a community where they feed deer in the winter, which is good because the deer are not getting the food they need because of a lot of snow and stuff. But at the same time, all of that... Um, waste from the deer is running off into like local ponds and rivers and creating like algae blooms. Right. Exactly. And then like yep. bugs. So, it, and, and that's just one example. Mm-hmm. Right. And there's the, I think the hard part is, is there's not just one thing that's causing issues with fisheries. There's, there may be that deer problem there. Right. But then somewhere else it could be a dam problem or somewhere else it could be a farming problem. And it's like yeah. all these things, you know, and that's, that's probably why I made it so broad and said land use. Right. Yes. Yeah, Cause it's it so hard. hard to, it is hard. 
death death by a yeah. thousand cuts right. is essentially well. Da- and and let's be honest, dams also create recreational opportunities for people up mm-hmm. up above the dam. For and, sure. And people are worried about those things one going away, like they like to boat, you know, or mm-hmm. water ski or whatever. And that's I mean, to each their own. Now that's their, that's their stuff. So. And I mean, um, some could argue that a dam is going to give you cold water all year round and you can fish there and that's good for the fish, you know? Exactly. And so it's like, yep. I don't know how you balance those things and how you balance, you know. Well, everybody needs to be a fly fisherman. That's the, that's the real <laughs> that truth. That would be a good way. I, I also think that, you know, the, the excessive, the excessiveness of what we have in Maine, we have a lot of dams that the majority of them are not even being used, Right. We have a lot of pitched culverts. Like, we have a lot of people living on our watersheds. And, you know, do you have a catch basin? Do you have sort of a a garden that can filter things out? And little things like that Mm -hmm. that can improve land use that you and I and anyone can do for almost zero dollars. Very, very cheap. Um, but people aren't educated they're on it. not being pushed as right. much as they should be they, uh, there are small groups pushing them and I'm sure you know I know a few and I'm sure you know a few but it's like why is there not a you know a larger push for those things because clearly land use and the more I think about it the the more I can totally see where you're coming from and what, what you're saying it's like it, it would be easy to mitigate it a little bit you know, and I, there's not a lot of programs out there that are pushing for that mitigation of, hey, cleaner land use, yeah. you know. And, yeah, so it's, it's... I think a lot of it has to come from community-based um, or within. Mm-hmm. And so because if you get people riled up about your area, they're going to care about it a lot more. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you start with your hometown and say, hey, there's, there's two culverts that we should replace, right? And you start there and you... Cause that, that's the number one thing. You can hit a lot more people that are passionate when it's in their area sure. and they yeah, use it. Yeah. Then you expand a little bit and you say, okay, now this this half of this, or, you know, a few yards of this watershed or, you know, not yards, but you know what I'm talking right. about. Yeah. A little area. Yeah. yeah. And you expand it to a bigger section and you kind of work up from there. Right. And you pick, you pick one thing because if you start, you know, going off into all sorts of different things – we got to change this, we got to change this, we got to change this. It's like be passionate about one thing and then be really strong about it and yeah. then you'll, you know, work up from there. Yeah. And that's that's proven with a lot of things that right. it works. For and sure. so I think that maybe is a starting point and just kind of find, you know, what you care about most or what you think is the most important because everybody is going to have their own perspective about what's important. Mm-hmm. But if everybody does what they think is important, Right for the greater good and helps, right. then you're going to get a lot of things done. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. 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 I, I like that you said land use too instead of like. I mean, I think over the last ten years, the big buzzword has been climate change, mm-hmm. and that's not something that you can fix on a small scale, right? Like you can improve the habitat mm-hmm. in your in your community by kind of speaking up and doing those things. Whereas changing overall climate change is obviously a much much yeah. bigger right. scale. So. You know, it's we know as fishermen that we have that fighting against us, right? We we totally get that, but there's also all these other factors. And uh, something I, I think I commented on a forum recently or whatever, and I was just like, I love to fish, I love to catch trout. They're cold water cold water species, but I hate the fact that 
I have to know so much about politics and learn so much about government and politics just to kind of fix some fishing issues, right? Like, I hate that they're tied together because they really shouldn't be at the end of the day. You don't love arguing about politics? No, I do not, no. Wow, that is surprising. Yeah, (laughs) I don't, I'm not a politics guy. Ask anybody who knows me. I don't even, I can't even tell you. I don't know many people that are. Yeah, Yeah, I just am not. It's not my thing and I want to go fish and I feel like, you know, what does the president of the United States have to do with me mowing my lawn here and in, in my at my house like I just feel like life is gonna kind of keep going so I just don't get too worked up about politics and but it does cross the fishing community a lot trying to remove a dam takes many years of many, political many years. action mm-hmm. to do that and that's something Particularly I'm less than the president more so local government especially with right. fishing decisions and you know in here we have IF and W and you know the governor is the boss of IFNW, you know, ultimately this, you know, governor Mills is the boss. So it's like, it's a, you know, crappy reality that politics does cross over into fisheries, but fisheries is a money driver and it makes a ton of money for Maine. Like, you know, it's true. Like a ton, you know, and, and it, right. You know, we've, Luckily, we've done it pretty well in Maine. We, we do have it fairly well, you know, but um, it does have that crossover. So it's kind of a reality that you have to accept at some level and say, hey, if we want major change for land use, probably fly fishing communities are going to have to breach into the political realm in order to yeah. achieve any real ground to gain any real ground those fly fishing communities are going to have to breach into that political realm and that you know i don't i don't want to do it but maybe one day i will and i know that you get you know we don't we're not we got a life we got a lot of life left to live here we're not divisive people you know we don't want to go into that device divisive atmosphere but i don't want to go to augusta i want to go to rangeley and fish but I don't want to go to Augusta and talk about stuff. I if, mean, if it came down to seeing the fish in Rangeley persist as they are, and I had to go to Augusta to achieve that, I would go to Augusta a million times over. You know, and so because those, you know, those fish in Rangeley and in Northern Maine, you know, where where Megan guides and the muskie and Allagash, my favorite, I, I would go to Augusta a thousand lifetimes over just to make sure that they persist. And for so, sure. For sure. I hope that we can have some groups that push in there that have sort of our mentality where it's fish first. We need more people because the fly fishing community in the grand scheme of things is small Mm -hmm. and it's hard to go anywhere when you have a small voice, you know? Yes, Yes, you need a large voice. Yeah, Yeah. and and I think that a lot of us understand the issues at hand or we think we have solutions, but no no one's going to listen to us because we don't have really... Yeah, okay. A lot of people, and we don't have a lot of, like, money behind it because that usually drives decisions too. So, I don't know. It's one of those things. That's a great question for Greg to ask, and I love yeah. your answer. Stuff. Mind <laughs> use. Stuff. Yeah, we could probably talk about it for three hours easily. I think so. and people would probably agree with most of what we say. But, well, um, this has been awesome. So, thank you so much for uh, coming down here and, and uh, 
doing the show, Megan. We yeah. appreciate thank it. Thank you, Megan. Thank you for having me. Honestly, it was a pleasure. Awesome. And That's thank great. you, Greg, for uh, coming on again and doing a little co-hosting. And uh, Thank you, Aaron, for being a great host again. Yep. Having us in your basement, having a good time. <laughs> yeah, just before we go, and I, I haven't had anybody who's come to the <laughs> studio yet, but can you guys just kind of tell the listeners, what what does my studio consist of here? There's a small pinch, uh, pink kitchen over there. Yep. Um, looks like there's a fake teapot over there some a microwave they can't cook anything that's right we're in a basement we're in a yeah. basement yep barbie yep. there's some blue walls couple yep. couple doors i'm not sure where they lead a <laughs> lot of babies a lot of doll babies here there's a lot of doll babies yep. here if you open that door behind you you're gonna see about ten thousand toys that people just keep giving us so if anyone's listening uh stop giving me toys because we don't have any more room <laughs> So, anyways, uh, thank you guys for coming on. Uh, and um, if you uh, go on Instagram, you can find Megan. She's at beadhead underscore fly fishing. Um, and Greg is at Maine Fly Guys. So, uh, thank you for listening again to another episode of the Maine Fly Fishing Podcast. <laughs> <laughs>